You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ulrich Baer, who is a professor of literature and photography at New York University, also the author of and translator of multiple books, probably most recently this book called What Snowflakes Get Right. But I think most of your work is translating from German, in particular books on Rilke. Here's this one right here, The Wisdom of Rilke, which is extracts from his letters. This one, Rilke on Love, translation of poetry. You also have a huge book series that you're involved in, which include writing forwards and afterwards for books like Virginia Woolf, And you've even written a novel, right? Which is, this one is called We Are But a Moment. And you've also been an academic administrator, right? I don't know whether that was voluntary or involuntary, but you spent a lot of time as an academic administrator. And I think having been a professor and administrator, and I guess we'll talk also about being an immigrant because part of your discussion in What Snowflakes Get Right is really all about the uniqueness or non-uniqueness of the American approach to free speech, particularly with, within the university. And I think this book was written in the aftermath of, of Charlottesville. It was written during the Trump administration, and, and you can see that in, in the book. But I think it really is about the environment that we're all going through in the universities and the debates. And um, you know, it was a couple of years ago when there were all of these provocative speakers that were brought onto campus by conservative organizations and this would lead to protests and so forth. And while I think that kind of peaked a little bit, we still have quite a bit of controversy over free speech in the university. So I guess the first question is, are these two different Ulrich Bears? <laughs> is this like we got the administrator book and then we've got the literature professor? Are these two related? I mean, how do you see your pursuit of knowledge and truth within the university being related to your promotion of discussion? and speech and conversation as an administrator. Thanks, first of all, Greg, for having me on the show. And it's completely one person. I see myself actually in these different roles as really invested in one project. And I have been at New York University for 27 years. It's the largest private university in the country. I started out as a freshman at the University of California at Berkeley, one of the largest public universities. And in my role as an administrator, Um, Really, my job was to facilitate as much open discussion, exchange of knowledge, et cetera, in university, in a huge range of schools. NYU has 21 separate schools. So everything from the law school to the medical school, really. And that project I take very seriously because I believe the university has a vital function in a democracy to practice what it means to be a democratic citizen, to rehearse that role in a certain way, especially for young people. And also to test maybe how durable all of our unspoken rules and conventions are and at what moments you can push against them. Young people like to do that. You can break some of those rules or norms. And one small point, I wrote this book, What Snowflakes Get Right, as an extension of an op-ed piece I published in the New York Times before Charlottesville. And actually, that's a little bit important because Charlottesville, I think, was a bit of a turning point in the awareness of the larger public that we are all in favor of the most expansive speech rights in universities and in society. And I think Charlottesville was a bit of a turning point due to the horrible death of a demonstrator who was deliberately killed and murdered by protests so that people thought, wow, this is actually really a crisis that is not just about speech, but actually about who can participate in the so-called public sphere. That event took place off campus in Charlottesville, as many people remember. But I wrote my piece several months before that, and my piece was really to show how the university is used as a kind of battleground or a stage or an arena for these discussions of what speech is good for us, what speech challenges us, what speech provokes us deliberately, and what speech maybe crosses a line into something else. And I wrote that really in a way to contribute to thinking about the university's role, and I felt The university was a little bit, in general, was a little bit slow to recognize they're just being used as a kind of stage and as a circus to really stage huge confrontations. And a lot of people who we've 
you know, mostly forgotten about. And those names, you know, the people, the kind of firebrands, they got a lot of money from outside organizations to give big speeches at Berkeley or other universities. They went there not just to have dialogue, but to also provoke a crisis, to have a scandal, to get media attention. So I wrote my piece to say, okay, I felt there was a bit of a distortion. And I thought, I'm in the university. I've been in the administration for a very long time. I deal with a lot of students and a lot of faculty with wildly divergent opinions on all sorts of matters. There's not a consensus. There's no group think at NYU. There are people on all sorts of every spectrum you can imagine. But I thought there was a little bit of a narrative that wasn't really helping anyone to understand that. And the narrative was the students are overly sensitive. They can't divide free speech anymore. They're just constantly triggered. They have all these emotions and feelings over facts. There was a really strong talking point. And I thought, yeah, that's not quite really what I see. And then to answer your second part, the other work I do, and I have a small press, and I write these introductions to canonical works of literature, and I'm very invested in this project. So it's from Frankenstein to Jane Eyre to Picture of Dorian Gray to The Great Gatsby, The Sun Also Rises to Mrs. Dalloway. So all those great books that are hotly debated whether they should still be read because the Western canon has been dismantled and is decolonized and has been revised. So there's a strong, let's say, challenge from, let me just roughly say, progressives on the left about the canon as a bunch of conservative white men who wrote big books, with some exceptions. Mary Shelley was a teenager. Virginia Woolf is upper-class British. And I thought, okay, how do you situate and how do you put these books into the 21st century for students who come with some legitimate claims and say, this book is racist, that book is sexist, etc. That for me as a scholar of literature is a little bit too simplistic. And now we're living in a world where we're seeing, and then on the right, we have full-on legislative efforts to use the power of the state to censor books, which is to me not exactly surprising. And some people find that a bit surprising. I think that these people do not want people to read books. I, as a literature scholar, sometimes I'm heartened by this and I think, wow, they think books have that kind of influence over people. I wish people would come to my classes and think the most important thing in America right now is what people in the fifth grade are getting to read. If books are that powerful, then there must be something in knowledge and in ideas. And my whole investment is in getting ideas and knowledge to as many people as possible in an informed way, not as just a kind of provocation, just throw them out there on social media to make people get upset or triggered or have a kind of controversy, but to say, what is it about ideas that is so powerful that we actually have a problem with some people saying them out loud? I mean, we're recording this while the CEO of TikTok is in front of Congress testifying and the congressional hearings, fascinating of what's at stake there. And they have singled out a company that has been defined as Chinese owned. It's not quite accurate, perhaps, in the business sense, but they're raising really vital questions about is democracy actually going to be able to sustain itself once all speech has been unleashed through social media? You know, I think that in spite of all the disagreement, it's pretty hard to find somebody who is not in favor of free speech, right? I mean, whether you're on the right or the left, but you favor free speech, you just define it differently. And I think you also discussed how free speech is in competition with other shared values, right? Like equality. But you'd also find it difficult to <laughs> find somebody who's not in favor of equality. And so they're both using kind of different definitions. But what I found most interesting is that whether you're on the right or the left, there's this belief that everybody wants to be heard somehow. And so while it is on the left, perhaps there are people that want a different form of representation on the canon they're saying, we also want diversity. We just want viewpoint diversity. So, so it seems like they're, both sides are using the same arguments, right? Except they're positioning them very differently. I think you're right. And you sort of put your finger on some of those terms. They are flexible or expansive enough. They can be used on both sides. And as you said, let's say we're a little bit, this is a bit of a summary, but the right generally says we don't have enough viewpoint diversity. They use the word diversity deliberately to undo or also a little bit owning the libs to say, oh, they want diversity. They really mean racial, ethnic, gender representation. And the right means, no, I want people who have different kind of viewpoints who are very conservative. I want people appointed in the universities. So the word diversity covers everybody's interest, as you said. Also, everybody is in favor of equality. If that means being treated equally by the law and having equal access to opportunities. 
And what I try to do in my book is to say, so there's this value, which is a value. It's very important to note. It's a value we all share. I'm deeply committed to free speech. I teach literature, which literature does not exist if you don't have free speech. It is actually the whole bread and butter of my profession is free speech, more so than in other fields even. If free speech is restricted, the first thing that goes is creative literature because it's obscene or it's offensive or anything, and the whole canon is that. But free speech is a value and it's also federally mandated and enshrined in the First Amendment. A lot of people I've talked to who are constitutional scholars, which I am not, have said the First Amendment is not the perfect lens for speech debates in universities. It doesn't map onto academic freedom as much because the university is really not just a so-called open marketplace of idea where anybody, you don't invite everybody on the show. Or can people just call you or tweet at you and say, hey, I want to be in your show, Greg? You're like, no, I'm actually vetting the people who come on. They have some expertise. They contribute to a public dialogue. They've made a point that people have discussed. All of those processes that you decide by picking your guests is what universities do when they invite speakers, appoint scholars, admit students, etc. So this is in tension with this equality principle that everybody should be in the university and say anything they want at any given time. We all know this is not true. If you're teaching a class on finance and people want to talk about the Grammys, you're going to say, what's the economy of the Grammys? But they really want to talk about whether this singer is better than that singer. And that's a different kind of class. And when I teach a class and they want to talk about baseball, I say, what is the symbolic significance? But if you really want to just talk about what happened yesterday at Yankee Stadium, that's not what this class is about. So we regulate speech in a gentle way, not in a repressive way. That happens in universities. So this is how speech and the First Amendment is really not a weapon to come in on. And I've, as a kind of joke, tongue in cheek, I've interviewed the chairs of law schools. Erwin Chemerinsky is the dean of the law school at Berkeley. Or I've interviewed Robert Post, who the dean of the law school at Yale. Fred Schauer, one of the most renowned constitutional scholars at the U. And I said, can I come give a lecture or teacher class in your law school? And I said, really, you're not even a lawyer. You're not even qualified. And then I said, well, that's my First Amendment right. Hey, Stanley Fish isn't a lawyer either, and he's got a position he's in law school. So, he's got a position in law school. So, and he's, he's a lot smarter than I am, so that's kind of warranted, I think. But I said, can I give a talk in the law school based on my First Amendment rights? And they said, you have no right for that. And I said, oh, but if I'm the leader of a Nazi party, which there's a self-identified Richard Spencer who gave talks at universities. And I said, that's different. I said, it's worth to explore that difference and explain it to our students. To explain why an outside speaker who has a political viewpoint at some moment is afforded this platform. And I understand the university as the platform and privilege that bestows significance on this course. Like if they want to give a talk, you know, if you're Berkeley, if you want to walk on Telegraph and give a speech, no problem. You want to be on the campus of Berkeley because it gives you that kind of importance. And then the other issue you bring up is free speech intention with another value we all hold, equality which is both a value, as I said, about speech that we actually believe in. We think people should have equal access to opportunities. People should be treated fairly and equitably. And it's also enshrined in federal law. And in the university, in a very specific sense for our listeners, for example, Title IX in the late 1960s, early 70s, what cannot happen in universities anymore, that you keep resources away from some people because they belong to a federally protected group. The direct example is they used to have sports facilities for male students, and they didn't have them for female students. And they said, you cannot do that. That's not fair. Equality prescribes that you must have the same amount of resources, meaning facilities or classrooms. So I cannot, as a teacher, exclude students from my classroom based on a federally protected category. I can exclude students who are not qualified because they didn't study the history of literature, they haven't read these books, they don't speak French or German or whatever it is. But I cannot exclude somebody saying, you cannot be in my class because you belong to a group by religion, gender, ethnicity, national belonging, which are federally recognized categories. And in my book, I only use those categories. I don't say because you have red hair or because you're too short or all these other things. And your question is to the point, are these two principles and values in conflict or can they be reconciled? In the university, we work a lot to actually create equality of access. Everybody comes into the classroom, we try to get them there. And when someone says something that excludes certain people and puts a higher demand on them to justify their existence, I kind of thought that's, first of all, that's bad teaching. And I constantly go back to that. When that happens in the classroom, sometimes I look at people and I say, 
this is how you teach? Did you really think this was a good way of doing it? Because you want to keep everybody in conversation. That means they will hear things that are offensive to them, upsetting to them, but it shouldn't single them out and having to justify their existence in their classroom. So when you go into a class and you say, I don't think women are really capable of mathematical reasoning, so I'm just not going to give you that assignment. You cannot do that. You cannot single out the group of women. You can say, the students here who are on a D, you're not capable of math. You have to work harder. You can do that. So there's the kind of distinction. And in my book, I try to say equality and free speech, they must be continually rethought and they must be, and this is a word I'm using, not in a legal sense, kind of balanced. Balancing is a whole different procedure in constitutional law. That I don't know anything about it. It's not exists because I'm not a lawyer. I just repeat that. But can we actually work in a university and in society where we don't say free speech trumps everything? It's always the default. So when people, and, the, and in America, as you know, and in my book, I don't give that many examples, but it's almost always about race or about gender and sexuality, which is quite remarkable. And in some ways you can say, should, let's say, racist language, which is not the same as hate speech, should that be permitted in universities? And we all know as well as everybody else, all of our listeners, if you're in a classroom and you're using racial slurs about an individual in their class or other people, you cannot be doing that in class. That's just the decorum of a university. So I thought it was interesting when you had people coming in and saying some group doesn't belong here, some group is qualified, and then students spoke up to say the university should stand up and say, yeah, actually, we have to think about that. That may interfere with our mission. That may not contribute to our mission. Instead of defaulting immediately saying, well, it's great we have this controversial speaker. And controversial is often code for someone who wants to provoke. Professional provocateur, they make money off that. They get a lot of following. So this tension between equality and free speech and constitutional law is instructive because it has been trying to negotiate that for a very long time, for about 50 years or so, when equality laws enshrined in American constitutional law through the amendments in the 60s. Well, I think that most people would agree that there's obviously exceptions, but most people would agree that if you come in and you say that women or people of different racial groups don't deserve to be here, don't deserve to participate in this conversation, that's something that should be unwelcome. But we exclude groups all the time within the university. If someone comes in as a flat earther or a creationist or a geocentric astronomer or an astrologist, then we are going to place a much greater burden on them, right? We are going to say, listen, before you even open your mouth, right, we're going to view you more skeptically, right? And indeed, that's what the university is for. The university is to adjudicate which ideas and positions are acceptable, right? And so in that sense, the university is inherently going to be less of a open, free place for discussion than the town square, right? And I don't think that it would make sense for a creationist to invoke viewpoint diversity or free speech rights. And so the university is clearly different from the town square in that regard, right? It's meant to be more selective. It's meant to be more exclusionary. But I think even your examples point to the fact that there's a kind of really strong and robust discussion of that. And there are creationists who teach. There's a quite well-publicized cost denier who doesn't teach history and is tenure faculty somewhere and people leave him alone because it's extramural speech. He writes those things not in his own field, so he seems qualified. There are other cases where it sort of becomes problematic, but as you're saying, the university is not the town square. We actually are not in the business of just promulgating as much speech as possible all the time. Everybody just speaks as much as they can about anything they care about. That's not what it is. It's informed discussion about their categories for evidence-based. You're supposed to be have thought about what you said. The University of Chicago published his principle on free speech. The president made them really public. A lot of universities have adopted them. I wrote a little response or commentary. In that statement, they say free speech is the absolute value of the university, and they never use the words knowledge or education. And I thought the purpose of the university, ironically, is not to have as much speech as possible but to have speech in the service of something, which is of learning, understanding, pushing boundaries, et cetera, saying the purpose of the university is as much speech as possible all the time, to be as unregulated as possible. It's like saying the purpose of democracies is to have as many elections as possible all the time. Elections are the means to an end to have democracies work. Speech is the means to an end to have the university work. It's not the first priority of the university as much speech. And then to go to your question, 
in the marketplace of ideas. It's useful, I think, sometimes for people to check with constitutional scholars and our Supreme Court to say it is also a exciting fantasy to believe all speech is permitted in America all the time without consequence. There are severe consequences for all sorts of speech. The one exception which people recognize immediately to say child pornography is illegal in this country. And I think it's a good thing. And any free speech absolutist, when you say to them, well, should child pornography be illegal? There may be a few people to say, yeah, we should have that on the internet all the time. Or should there be false labeling on medication? That is restricted speech. In business and corporate America, speech is regulated all the time. In the law, you cannot have a false contract. If I rent you an apartment and I say something false in that contract, that speech is actually, I will be penalized for saying something. It's just a bunch of words on the page. So speech is, of course, regulated to make things function and work. So when people say I'm a free speech absolutist, I say I am also. Absolutely. Free speech is is something innately human. It's actually what you said earlier. Everybody wants to be heard. It connects to something in us that is deeply human. Free speech absolutism should not be confused with the government allows all speech without consequence. Domestic terrorism, treason, threatening the president, they're all sorts of really easy examples. And they're not that interesting in a certain way because people accept them and say, well, let's put them aside. Of course, child pornography is bad. Threatening the president is bad. But otherwise, everything is good. And I'm thinking, well, Eugene Waller, who's a a constitutional lawyer at UCLA, and he's politically probably, I don't know, maybe more conservative than I am. I don't know. And I said, Eugene, what would change if universities just prohibited racist speech as hate speech? And he said, nothing. It would just be different. And I said, what if the Supreme Court said that actually racist slurs are uh, considered hate speech? And he said, it would just be different. And then I said, what? this be the end of democracy in America? I said, no, absolutely not. He said, it would be a different way of interpreting a law. He said, the First Amendment is not a self-explanatory law that stands in the world, but it is constantly examined and reconsidered. Also, what is, I think, interesting for everybody, the First Amendment was not cited by the Supreme Court until the 19-teens. The entire 19th century, it is never once cited as the guiding principle for deciding disputes in America. And Eugene said, did you think? And I said, yeah, I kind of did think, actually. It was kind of our enshrined sacred law, and it was cited every single day. And he said, no, 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 no. You misunderstand what the law is. The law is enacting principles and giving them meaning by reinterpretation and revisioning. I think when people get very anxious and say, wow, if this speech right is abridged or compromised, we are the slippery slope to basically all of our rights will be compromised and taken away from us. That's just not correct. It just sticks and can be one thing that's more regulated, and then it'll be, again, revised after that. But while the university is a place that has more restrictions around speech than the town square, for good reason, couldn't we also say that maybe the university is a place that has sufficient guardrails in place that maybe it should be a place that's more tolerant? than the outside world. Look, when you're spending time at the dinner table with your family, right, you don't feel afraid to make jokes or or say things or share feelings that, you know, because there's an element of trust. And the the trust is that people aren't going to assume you're implying certain things or take things out of context. There'll be an opportunity to explain and explore and make mistakes, take risks. I think that when we talk about safe spaces, there's a lot of different ways of talking about it. I think a lot of us want our classrooms to be a place where you can take risks and explore without fear that what you say is going to show up on Twitter and then you're going to be demonized. But when you step out into the town square and you start talking, you shouldn't be surprised if what you say shows up on Twitter and you're ripped to pieces. So do we have it backwards to some extent? I mean, can universities be also a place where exploration and error is you know, encouraged and welcomed? precisely because we actually have guardrails in place that prevent those mistakes and uh, faulty reasonings. We have checks and balances in place that don't exist in the town square. Have we lost that? I feel like a lot of people I know, they don't want to take any chances or risks in the classroom because they're afraid that they're going to be misinterpreted and Twitterized. I mean, you're touching on a few different things. One is social media and what happens and is there But let's start with, is the university a safe space? Absolutely, 100%. It ought to be a safe space if the opposite of safety is danger and harm. Absolutely. That's, first of all, we all agree on that. 
So you're saying the opposite of safety may not be safe. It's not coddling and humoring and actually self-censoring for the risk of some kind of being ostracized. But safety means real safety, actually. And we also know universities work on that quite hard. The wellness and safety of our students is actually really, truly significantly important. There was a huge debate in the 1990s until today about the kind of blue lights on campus that are kind of safety mechanisms for female students, because there's a lot of rape incidents on college campuses. And some people argue, no, universities should self-regulate. We don't need that. It gives people a sense of being victims. So safety, I think, is we can move aside physical safety, of course. But you're saying, shouldn't there be risks taken? Shouldn't people not feel worried that they can say, and it's not quite they want to say whatever they want. It's kind of they want to right. say something that is actually sometimes upsetting, offensive, provocative. And where's the line to saying, and this becomes a threat. And I think we are living in a kind of generational shift in the language of students. And I have two kids in college also, or my son just graduated from Berkeley, actually. But they are they live in a different language. So the language that we've learned, but it's not my language, is they are triggered or this is upsetting and they resort to a vocabulary quite quickly, which is shared on the left and right. It is a fantasy the right doesn't use it. That I'm victimized, I've been decimated, I'm hounded. And in some ways the right wing is incredibly good. When something happens on Twitter, they use the language of victimization as much as the left. So it's not the left who are these coddled snowflakes and the right are these valiant defenders of free speech because they have a thicker skin and they are tougher. It's not true at all. They're incredibly sensitive and they actually get incredibly upset when someone goes after them on Twitter. Where I think, isn't that what they like? Shouldn't that be okay? So let's say what happens in the classroom, should the university actually have guardrails in place to say, for example, what happens in the classroom cannot be filmed or recorded and put on Twitter or talked about on Twitter. I don't know if I'm in favor of that because I kind of think it's, yes, my classroom, the seminar, the laboratory, the workshop, the theater, whatever you're teaching it, is a somewhat not a quite secular space that's filmed or recorded and put on Twitter or talked about on Twitter. I don't know if I'm in favor of that because I set off from that. There are all sorts of mechanisms to get into it. But at the same time, I shouldn't just have this conversation as if there's no outside world. So I'm less upset about this. And I feel my question goes more to what is it that was said that upsets people so much that they felt they had to go on Twitter? And if you look at the cases, and I follow some of them, you like you, I don't follow all of them because there's too many. And sometimes you think this is really a tempest in a teapot. Some little thing happened at the university and now it's national news. And you're thinking this is not quite what happened. What are those cases? They're almost always about race and gender and sexual identity. And that's remarkable in a way. Why is this the touch point? And then I think, okay, what is happening in these classrooms? And why are students saying this isn't working for me? And a lot of people I've interviewed on my podcast have said this is because this is the third generation of non-white students and male students who are really in the university. Because the 60s, we saw a kind of desegregation of higher education. We really did by federal law and then voluntarily after that, I guess. But you really only see the third generation. And there are students who are saying, my mom already went to school here and got a medical degree. My dad went here. And their grandparents were literally on a picket line to get into the school. And then someone is calling me out for being a minority. So I think there's a kind of impatience and frustration that I think universities, instead of saying, oh, I can't say anything anymore, say, lean into it. Say, what is going on actually in my classroom here that they get upset with something and I can't make the jokes I used to make? I mean, I wrote a piece for Publishers Weekly on how to teach Hemingway's, Ernest Hemingway's first novel, The Sun Also Rises, which has inspired a lot of people in my generation to go to Paris, fall in love, get drunk, and go to see the bullfights. That's sort of it. And find yourself as an American. So it's 1926 after the war, and it's. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of it. Absolutely. You're guilty of it, and I have friends who are guilty of it. and in that novel, there's a page where he uses the N-word 11 times in one page. And I've talked to my friends, and I, including my friend Pamela Newkirk, who's at the past who wrote a great book on diversity. She said, Uli, I love Paris for this book. I'm in Paris writing about Black Americans in Paris. I forgot that page existed. But today's students don't overlook that page. So today's students look at me and say, why in the world are you teaching this novel where this racist term comes up 11 times? My work then is to say, 
how do we make sense of that with a changed demographic? And I think you're putting your finger on it. There is a changed sense, a changed attitude that people feel they can call out other remarks, teachers, or maybe it's a sense of entitlement. Instead of resisting it, I think, okay, the university has to engage with it. I'm not sure we have found the right way. I think the effort of diversity, equity, and inclusion offices is laudable and really good. It also doesn't do anything. As my friend Pamela Newkirk, who I just cited, she wrote a book called Diversity, Why a Billion-Dollar Industry Shows No Results. And she is an African-American colleague of mine. She said it's a really important thing. And at the same time, we're putting huge amounts of resources into that we're not quite getting to the issue at hand or we're not, we're missing something. I don't, when I said Twitter, it wasn't so much that I was concerned that sunlight is not a disinfectant. I think it is, of course. But what I was concerned about was that at the university, we try to teach people to reason. We try to teach people not to kind of skip steps or make assumptions or inferences that are unwarranted. And we know that Twitter is not a place or social media. Typically, things are taken out of context or people are, there's no dialogue. So oftentimes, if someone says something in, in the academic environment, we're supposed to query them. We're supposed to question them. We're supposed to say, what do you mean by that? So for instance, if someone says, hey, I think maybe there are some unintended consequences associated with our invasion of Iraq. And if somebody put that on Twitter, then someone else on Twitter would say, oh, this guy supports Osama bin Laden. He, he's a terrorist, right? Now, look, in, in the classroom, if someone made that kind of response, that would be considered inappropriate. It would just be considered sloppy and bad reasoning. And so, you know, in the classroom, you're supposed to say, okay, are you saying that you think 9-11 was a good thing, right? And of course, the person would say, no, that's not what I'm saying. You can, in fact, oppose the Iraqi invasion and oppose 9-11. And so the, in the classroom, the presumption is that people will have an opportunity to explore nuance and delve into ideas and ultimately persuade each other, improve each other. And that's not sort of how public discussion happens in the Twitter sphere, <laughs> whatever you call it. So I think the question was, if we have a classroom where those are the shared norms, norms around discussion, debate, then we can kind of allow people to maybe explore ideas and explore positions, which may on the surface appear absurd. Because at one point, heliocentricity was considered absurd and beyond the pale, and it wasn't accepted fact. And the idea that men and women have equal intellectual attributes, that was at one point considered a bizarre and obscure idea. And shouldn't the university be the laboratory where we we're kind of more willing to explore these things because they're bound to get rejected if they're bogus in ways that they're not going to get rejected in the public sphere. They're going to take on a life of their own and they're going to explode. And then you're going to have a society of flat earthers and you're going to have a whole Twitter group of flat earthers. And that's less likely to happen in the university. So we have less to fear. I think you're right. This assumption is there's a kind of assumption that people are here willing to listen and learn. It's uncomfortable to learn. It's not easy. I think you're right, and it's not the same as on Twitter. The goal is sometimes to score a point, to score a victory, to decimate your opponent, to come back with the quickest, wittiest reply, and just paint them into a corner. So, oh, you supported this attack on 9-11. So you're in a corner now, you're backing yourself out of that corner. It's almost impossible because you're now you're engaging on their terms. Universities should not let that happen, actually. That's also bad teaching. The movie Tar with Kate Blanchett right now, she is, you know, a really great example. She has a kind of controversy in the classroom. And I watched it and I thought, oh, this is the moment where she goes too far. And she's a bad teacher because she doesn't let a student off the hook. The student may be misinformed, ill, misguided. He doesn't want to play Beethoven or something because it's a white male that composer. And she goes too far in a way as a pedagogue in terms of teaching. She doesn't really go too far challenging his ideas, I think. But there's a difference. And I think, as you know, the university isn't always that perfect place. And people will also attribute the wrong motives. That's one thing. And say, you said this in order to imply something else. And I don't want you to talk anymore. Secondly, in the university, as idyllic as we'd like to imagine the scene right now, there is power in it. And people bring their social identities into it. And, you know, I, I do what you do. I have a podcast. So I interviewed Patricia Williams, who is a legal scholar and was a legal columnist for the nation called the Mad Law Professor, brilliant woman. And she said, Uli, what you're forgetting is power. 
power is still an operative in every social interaction. So when suddenly people then fall out of their kind of best intentions, the right setting, we're all here to investigate a subject, and suddenly people are being redirected to say, you're saying this because you're a white male, you're this, you're a black woman, you're this, you have an agenda, you have an ideology behind you. And you can't totally remove that. The university ought not to remove it. It's a fantasy. It's a kind of John Rawls fantasy, the veil of ignorance. And we all sit around and decide how just the society should be operating if we don't know our subject positions. But how does the university not allow that to take over and overwhelm everything? And that's what happens sometimes. And I think there it's for the university to say, how do you actually teach people not to let that overwhelm you? And we know that's when discourse breaks down. If I point at you and say, great, you're saying this because X, Y, Z of your attributes rather than because you thought about it. And now you're standing in for an entire demographic, for an ideology, for some kind of worldview, belief system that you may like saying, what are you talking about? I just wanted to raise a question here. So universities, I think they're so amazing because they do try to create these somewhat idealized situations. And then they test the limits of that because people are people and they bring into that. And maybe today, because we live in more diverse universities and there are many different people in classrooms from 50 and even 30 years ago, and even 20, when I was in college 30 years ago, classrooms looked different. My classrooms look different at NYU than they did 27 years ago. I cannot make an assumption that when I walk into a classroom that all these people went through the American high school system. Not at all. Most people in the classroom did it. So I cannot even make an assumption. They really don't know certain references that I would have taken for granted. That's a challenge. And that, I think, is part of what factors into these kinds of breakdowns of the community before the assumption was everybody's kind of like me. And... You know, that was also probably incorrect. And what we have today is society where people are much more vocal. You know this as well as I do as all listeners. You know, universities have been in the kind of lead on the pronoun kind of discussion that a lot of people in my life put on their Zoom identity, like their pronouns, he, he, him, she, her, they, them, or something like that. That wasn't even conceivable 30 years ago. So that's really changed. And it's a really big challenge for people in my generation to say, what am I supposed to do now? Learn someone's pronoun. I talked to Stanley Fish, who you mentioned, who is a very opinionated, very intelligent person. And I said, Stanley, you are a Milton scholar. You have studied the changes of the English language over 400 years. It is not. And he said, you're right. And he, I said, you can tell me when the word they was used as a singular pronoun. He said, absolutely. And I said, And you are a professor of English. Your whole life is about learning new things. And then it was very funny. His wife said, I have to meet you. And I said, why is it? Because you're the first person who's changed his mind on anything. And I said, why have this battle here over the pronoun? Why have it? Because the battle touches on something else. It touches on an assumption that I know who you are. And I can have this kind of discussion with these assumptions. And there's something very unsettling for people, I think, to be in a classroom where these other criteria identities are invoked as forms of power and authority. Say, I speak from this subject position and you cannot tell me anything. That's not what universities are really good at, but it's the world we live in today. So I'm saying that what you're identifying is a genuine challenge for this environment of the university where people bring in their identities as forms of authority. I think you're right. I mean, Students in some ways are more vocal, but in some ways they're less vocal. Within the classroom, I think the debate is impoverished, but outside the classroom, for instance, if a faculty member says something and a student finds it disagreeable, they're much more likely to disagree through outside channels. Maybe go to the administrator and say, hey, you know, I don't like what this person's saying, rather than in class say, hey, you know, here's here's what I think is wrong with what you're saying. So in other words, it's sort of a particular type of confrontation, but it's not a confrontation within the bounds of debate as traditionally understood. But I guess the other question is, I think both conservatives and liberals think that professors have a great deal of of power, right? On the kind of left side, the professor has this power and has the ability to exclude people who deserve to be heard. But then the right wing will say, these professors are indoctrinating our children (laughs) and so forth. Do they get it wrong? My sense is that the students are the customers and they're, they're kind of running the show and the professors have to be very wary of displeasing their customers. 
isn't this really a customer-driven business? And isn't this the people who are complaining about snowflakes, aren't they just misunderstanding this as just sort of a rise of customer satisfaction taking priority over over some of the other objectives? Isn't this just a story of the commercialization of, of the university and the consumerization of the university? Yeah, I think money is a huge factor. I think you're totally right. That students correctly view themselves as consumer of an incredibly expensive product. Plus, there's a huge inflation in the administrative group. So there's a lot of money spent on administrators. The students are taught from the beginning. The administrators are there to assist you in navigating the system. So when they turn to an administrator to help them in what they see as a problem, they say, not a good teacher here. Can you fix that? Rather than actually them being in a space where they say, your teaching is entering into a complex relationship with us that is supposed to work for both of us. So when you do something, it doesn't work for some of us. We should address this in the class rather than reporting you as a bad deliverer of a product. But I think that is a totally pervasive thing. Then what pundits think happens, this indoctrination, and some of my colleagues are very involved in this kind of heterodox academy, and they're very worried about viewpoint diversity. They actually have ideas that I find, I can use some really exciting words like, What's more Stalinist than imposing a quota of certain types of professors to be hired into a department? They really have ideas that well, we should check who you voted for in the last election, and that's the English department should be that. I think that is actually the university, but they really say that. They say in the English department, we should have X number of professors who voted Republican in the last election. And I said, I would not want to live in a world like that. But they say, you do live in a world like that because the English department only hires people who vote Democrat. I said, no, we actually didn't check how they voted, when we hired them. But I think they get something a little bit wrong because they don't quite see what happens in teaching. And I see actually a lot of classes that are so demanding that students are working so hard to pass the class that a third of the students don't even make it. They get weeded out because it's difficult. They don't even have time to be indoctrinated and the professors are not saying, you must follow my lead to think in this particular way. There's just the everyday university. It is a very complicated thing to succeed in a university, in a demanding university today. So this indoctrination part, and then there's a totally different question. But if you live the life of the mind, and if you're dedicating yourself to this, and I see myself really chiefly and principally as a teacher, my passion and what I care about is really that I'm a good teacher. And it's very, very hard. I've taught for 27 or 29 years, I think, 27 years at NYU. I'm okay. I'm not a really great teacher, yet it takes a long time to be a really good teacher. And it's, it's a rare thing. And I think that is the priority. And if you choose that life and you didn't go into another industry or something like that, and you didn't go after other values, which are genuine values, which is public esteem, influence, power, money, those are the things. We don't get a lot of that in the university. We are overvalued. We don't have that much power, as you said. Professors have, what power do we have? You can write an op-ed and move people for about four days and then it fades away. But I think they overestimate a certain type of indoctrination, but they don't get it wrong that professors tend to be more attuned to what you said earlier. We're actually willing to engage with other people and listen to them and say, how did you get there? How did you think about that? That is, in general, I would say a liberal mindset in the sense of it's open-minded and not doctrinaire. So there tend to be fewer people who are ideologically so committed to something to say the only way to look at it is this particular way. There are, of course, people like that. But this is a thing. So I think that's the university's skew. And you can see it in these surveys, which I think they're only partially reliable. But in business schools, you tend to have more professors who tend to be, let's say, fiscally conservative. Socially, I think maybe not in other departments. But this indoctrination question, let's say it's true. What would be the recommendation to say, how are we going to start hiring by ideological grouping? I I do not want the legislature to tell people, you must hire these kinds of professors. So in some ways, how can that be avoided? The mechanisms in the university are all the vetting. We hire our colleagues, appoint our colleagues, review our colleagues. It is supposed to be a collective process, so it's not three people deciding that the economics department at the University of Chicago will look like this for the next 40 years. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you, you, know, you, you highlight that it really doesn't make any sense to think about the limits of permissible speech without looking at the content of that speech. And I think that makes sense, obviously. But isn't there also kind of like a, at least within the world of science, a process 
approach to what counts as permissible? In other words, a line of reasoning which adheres to the rules of scientific inquiry, those that's acceptable. One that doesn't is unacceptable. And that is independent of conclusions. And the essence of the scientific method is that if the reasoning is correct, then you know you kind of have to accept conclusions. And, and it seems that a lot of the sort of you know sensitivity that, that people have around speech is really all about here are the conclusions that someone might be able to draw from this line of research. And so we're going to just cut it off on at the pass, right? Because we're concerned that this might provide ammo. I've been talking, I did a course on, on the COVID pandemic last year at Stanford, and it seemed like the scientific debates, a lot of the scientific debates were turned into kind of political debates, right? And so the line of inquiry was either truncated or accelerated based on the uses to which it could be put or the impact that it might have. And, and I think that is at least part of the critique of the so-called snowflakes is that we don't want you saying this because this is what could be inferred from it, or we don't want you saying this because this is how it makes people feel. And the essence of scientific inquiry is that it doesn't really matter how you feel. What matters is whether it you know it follows the appropriate method. So how do we tease that apart? How do we teach students to, to maybe just suspend their rush to judgment or suspend their, maybe their emotional response to a line of inquiry, let it play out a little bit before they judge it's it? It's very hard to distinguish how the national sciences arrive at something and allow a certain kind of research to go on. And in science, there's, of course, a separate debate as is all research really permissible? We are not allowed to actually research how to clone human beings in America. In China, you can. So in some ways, you can say there is a bright line immediately in science, and scientists never talk about that there's a restriction on speech. They say, that's a good thing. We shouldn't clone human beings. We agree to that. So all these debates, I think students should, first of all, be introduced to say, how did people come up with that? The ethical principles that guide the use of science. But the second question you have, how should students become a bit more tolerant to say, let's look into this matter a little bit more closely. And though you may think it may actually come up with results to say some people are responsible for their own misery or something like that, or their own political situation. Jefferson, in the notes of the state of Virginia, said, I wish we could teach democracy the way we teach mathematics, that it's conclusive. There's no other way to get to it. And ultimately, you end up with the right result. And he said, we can't do that. And Jefferson, who founded the University of Virginia, said, how do you inculcate a kind of love of democracy in people? Because the research, the investigation could go in a totally different direction. The founders of the country always were aware of that. They said, ultimately, there's going to be enough people in America who, are, who have good intentions and are well dispositioned to create a good society. There are not going to be too many mavericks and people who are going to destroy the system. But so your question is, how do you encourage people to go further? And I think people should be compelled in courses to look at arguments that they feel really unpalatable. They think they're working against me. They're working against my group. I still have to look at that. You can say in really volatile issues. So should people study the people who are strongly in favor of limiting access to abortion? And some people say, I don't want to even look at those people. That's not an argument I want to pursue. Is that you may want to find out what the argument is not to give more ammunition to them and to persuade you, but to understand their reasoning. That's a good point. And then your next question is, okay, like, should we permit everything? I was in a conversation with Keith Whittington, who wrote a book on free speech at Columbia, it's a campus speech, I think it's called. And he has a line in that book, which I quoted back to him. And I, he said, we should invite proponents of slavery and genocide to debate their ideas. And I said, actually, we should not debate genocide. It doesn't matter, actually. There's no outcome that could get us to something. And I said, that should not be debated. There is a bright line, like in science, we, the bright line is we do not allow the cloning of humans. In this country right now, it'll change quite possible if you look in other countries. And in some ways, there should be very rare things where someone says, we do not actually have someone come who lectures that Genocide is a really good way of population control. It's just we've ruled. And there, I think the way science ruled out that the Earth is the center of the universe, they've ruled that out. You cannot get an appointment anymore and say, well, I believe the Earth is our universe. The sun is not, it's not heliocentric. Certain things, very few things, we have kind of put on the dustbin of history, very few things, and we leave them there. And we study them only as historical artifacts. What was the debate that led to that and all that? But we don't really 
open a topic again. But in the humanities, it's much harder to say that, much, much harder than the sciences. In the sciences, people generally come to a kind of agreement. This new paradigm is now in place. Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, illustrates that. And then ultimately, people come around and say, okay, we're not looking at that issue anymore. In the humanities, we're actually far too excited to say, let's look at this again. Let's open it again. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because when we think of free speech as a political thing in the U.S., we're generally thinking about the freedom to engage in political speech. And when it comes to scientific quackery, I think we're perfectly comfortable sort of saying, hey, you can't get a job here if you're a scientific quack, but we're going to fight to preserve your ability to stake out a position in the world of politics. It seems like it ought to be the opposite, right? Why can't we say, listen, if you don't adhere to these normative principles of equality and tolerance, then, you know, you're not welcome here. But if you have a scientific idea that's on the fringes, think that ulcers are caused by infectious agents, which seems absurd, right? It did back in the 70s. We're going to let you maybe do a little research on that. Doesn't it seem like we kind of have it, have it backwards, right? No, absolutely not. No, we should allow everybody to debate what is the true meaning of equality. I think those things should have to be open for debate precisely because we don't want to impose on people to say this is the way our society is functioning. Science is different. It operates in a different way and it really has different rules, verifiability, experimentation and all that. I think I would say no. I think it's right that we actually allow this other space to be so ungoverned and wild and we keep on investigating things, even things that I would hope everybody walks in and says consensus is this is right. Like, let's say the law of the land in America right now, more or less, is there's marriage equality for gay people, right? That's the law of the land at the moment. It may not stay that way. We know this. It's not God-given. A lot of people think it's actually against God. But I don't think I need everybody to walk into the door and say, yes, I accepted this as a fact, the way I accept the law of gravity. That fact, and people, you know, there's flat earthers and all that, as you said, some people believe in multiple universes and whatever. It doesn't matter really. But in some ways, no one really takes them seriously. But people maybe should be taken seriously to say, I'm vehemently opposed to this law because it's not a law anchored in nature. It's a human created law. Um, as we've also seen, science can also get it very wrong and say this is the law of nature and then suddenly this entire paradigm is out the window and it doesn't work anymore. We thought it was a law of nature, but it's actually, of course, a human interpretation. So I don't think we get it wrong in that way. And after I wrote this book, people were like, oh, you know, you, are, you want to limit all speech. I said, no, I want to actually find ways to expand speech in the university so not to constantly run into these guardrails and create a crisis. I find it exasperating and a waste of time that universities set themselves up to be constantly challenged. Instead of saying what you said earlier, we are in a room, we have to make assumptions, we're here to achieve a goal, which is to understand things better. That will mean subjecting yourself to someone's, it's not just an opinion, but an informed opinion that is probably anathema to how I think. The most amazing thing is what happens in universities when people actually change their mind. And I actually, as a teacher, I think about this a lot. I cannot change my students' minds. I cannot make them have an imagination. All I can do is give them moments and opportunities where that happens for them. It's not me telling them, now, Greg, you should think this way. But there is that moment where you think, oh, I hadn't thought of this. And then it becomes natural to you. Like, oh, wow, this is now an unavoidable way of thinking. That's a powerful thing. But that's not me having illuminated something. It's just creating a situation where you saw another position in a different way. We only have a couple minutes left, and we didn't even talk about your life in literature and your your role in kind of in promoting knowledge of poetry and literature. Do you find that this is more difficult maybe than it was when you started out? I've spoken to a number of folks in the humanities who have talked about how difficult it is to recruit students to the humanities. And in particular, poetry is an area that is becoming increasingly obscure, right? It's not part of the public discussion the way it was in the past, unless, of course, you include more common forms of poetry, like rap music, for instance, which is, I think, I see it as poetry. But I mean, everyone wants to do STEM now, right? Is teaching humanities difficult? Is attracting people to the humanities difficult? Yeah, the numbers, it is somewhat difficult. There are some trends of people moving away from the humanities, and that's understandable in one sense that they're spending a fortune to go to universities. You spend a quarter million dollars and you have to get a job. The data is that actually you don't necessarily make that much more money in all fields, but in data science, computer, tech, you probably make more money in the beginning. 
I also think we're seeing recalibration of that, that tech jobs are maybe not quite as satisfying as what people thought. And they're also very sort of big swings. So a lot of people have been dismissed in the last couple of months. So a lot of my students who had jobs or who are started at companies and suddenly are facing the fact that those companies will let you go right away. I think for me, the question is, can you imagine a world without literature and art? You could. And it wouldn't be the world you want to live in at all. Not that you read a novel every day and you need this, but in some ways it gives a kind of depth to our experience that you can't find anywhere else. And I would include film and theater and all that. It, you, there's a depth of experience that everybody knows. And there's two parts. There's a kind of utilitarian argument. What are the humanities good for? If you're listening to the congressional hearings about TikTok and the limited understanding of the effects of speech, of what freedom is, of what control is, like they, you need philosophers in that room to actually take those things apart. Like in, in conversation with somebody at Google, it's really interesting. They don't have any idea how to regulate anything on the internet because the principles are not developed by engineers or tech people who actually have different methods of doing that. So the utilitarian argument is we need humanities to understand something. The other one is that's harder and people don't come to that. All of my students understand there's a dimension to their lives that is not satisfied in other ways. There's an enormous beauty in science and STEM and mathematics, like a real genuine aesthetic beauty, but they know, they want to know something else about the world. The way I would fix this, so I was my provost for many years, and as I said, I would be much stricter about allowing AP credit into colleges because I do not believe a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old is really ready to really grasp the challenging depth of Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson, Zora Neale Hurston, Ralph Ellison, whatever. I think it's very hard to do when you're 17. I think it's actually possible at 17 to do a level of math and chemistry that you can achieve. But if you look at the statistics... AP credit is overwhelmingly granted to get people out of literature courses and history courses. And it's not granted in the sciences. So the sciences have a much better gatekeeping mechanism of saying, no, you got to take our physics 101, 102, 103, 104. And in English, we say, oh, yeah, you can get into the upper level course or never take English because you already took it as a high school student. If I think I'm 57 years old. And my job right now is I gave myself, I reread the books I read when I was 9, 8, 17, 18, 19, 20. I came to this country as an exchange student. I went to a big, huge high school in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I spoke almost no English. And I read Fitzgerald and Hemingway as books that really Hawthorne, Emerson, wrote to what does it mean to be an American? For me, that was such an exciting and thrilling part of it. And that is taken away from a lot of students who got those classes in high school and now go to college and I got to get all my stuff done, do all my STEM fields. And if I were the university administration, I would say also in a very gentle way, take a while to tell the people who run the physics department, all the STEM fields to say, you have to give up one class in your 13 course sequence for the major and give that to a mandatory general education requirement where they take literature, philosophy and the arts. So that's, I'm identifying two things. There's a kind of metaphysical argument why the humanities are good. The other one is structural, that people pay a lot of money and the university has allowed another industry to basically outsource this education into high schools, which is wonderful. High school teaching is an amazing thing. But when I was 17, what did I know about the world? A lot of things. And I had the benefit of having no experience, as Aristotle said. I had great passion and no experience. That's the benefit of youth. Now I have a lot of experience and little understanding. Having said that, the nice thing about being at a university is I teach a required course in literature. Virtually all my students major in data science, economics, finance, and STEM. And they say to me sometimes, Professor Bea, I, I have to confess, I haven't read a book in three years. Not one book, nothing. And how easy it is to get them excited. It is such a low bar that within two classes, they realize, oh my God, I can have this conversation here. And it's almost always one of those difficult conversations. They say, I can wait, I can talk about what it means to be part of this or what it is takes doing. So, so I feel on the one hand, it's, it's a crisis of humanities, all that, but the university would have tools to fix it. I'm not sure they're committed to do it. And last question. We've seen a decline in, I think, the consumption of fiction over the last couple decades. And we've seen, I think, in many ways, a decline in the maybe civility of, of conversations. Are they related? You seem to be alluding to the notion that reading fiction and literature equips you with the capacity to engage in more empathic conversations, maybe think more carefully about things of importance. It does not make you into a better 
person. To read fiction can make you into a terrible person. Lots of great villains. Iago or someone like that. There are lots of great people. Like If people have their wedding styled after The Great Gatsby, <laughs> I think they should read the ending of that book before they do that. That's, he, he ends up dead in the pool, spoiler alert. Not a great model. But I think it gives you a kind of dexterity and skill to interrogate yourself and to give your language how to do that, which is vitally important, because I think what people really want is to say, how do I express myself in an authentic and sincere way and remain understandable to others? That's what fiction can do. It's a kind of training ground for that. How do you interrogate yourself in a productive way, not in an obsessive way, but that is an enormously important skill. And that is also the skill of actually you need in business, you need in any other field. You actually, how do you present and articulate yourself having been thoughtful about how you come across? Let's say that's what fiction is. It doesn't make you into a good person, but I'm not sure other fields really give you that and how we live in a world that is, in spite of what you said, people don't read as much anymore. They consume lots of media. Language is so vitally important for our self-constitution. That's why we have all these arguments all the time in America, which I like about all these terms and terminologies and what should it be called and this or is it that? It's incredibly important to people and they spend not quite enough time thinking, wow, I would like to know and marshal the power of language for myself. And that's what you get by reading very powerfully matched literature. I think you get it actually more from literature, from fictional literature, than you get it from political treatises or documents. How do you marshal the power of your language? That's an amazing skill to have. And the other part, like, I read books for pure pleasure. I love stories. We live in stories. I love them. I like other people's stories more than my own. I don't find myself very interesting. I find other people much more interesting. So <laughs> novels give you that. Well, Uli, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the, the book is called What Snowflakes Get Right. But I also recommend that you check out, if you're interested in learning about a real kid, you should definitely check out these books. And also, the other books that you provide forwards and afterwards for, they're worth buying just for the forwards and the afterwards, I have to say. So check it out. And I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.